choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode 273 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 13, Free Return, Part 3. Power and this engine, which runs from 1,050 to 9,500 pounds of thrust, is throttleable, as so-called, is capable of taking the whole shebang here out of lunar orbit and send it on the way back home. Now, they don't have any backup system anymore. That is the backup system. That's the one that they would have used if the solar propulsion system engine had gone out uh, uh, while they were still in lunar orbit and before they were detached from this. Now they can use it to come home, and that's what they're going to have to do. The maneuvers will be then, first of all, to get lined up, as we were talking about a moment ago, uh, without uh, perhaps uh, some, of the, uh, uh, some of the computer help that they would have normally have, but with the star sites that uh, Wally was just telling us about, they will get lined up uh, as accurately as they can, and it must be quite accurate. Uh, then they will fire this engine down here at the bottom uh, to speed them up. By speeding them up, the moon doesn't catch them in quite the same orbit uh, it would have normally, and, uh, and it, in, in effect reestablishes what is called a free return trajectory. In other words, it speeds them up enough so that the moon just catches them with its gravity and throws them around in a slingshot maneuver, but just precisely if this firing is correct, so that they will return to Earth. Then perhaps they will need another firing of this engine on the way back to Earth to line up exactly for their landing on the scheduled spot in the Pacific. But at any rate, that's what is being planned right now. There is no Continuing from the previous episode... The astronauts in Houston are preparing for a burn to place the spacecraft on a free return trajectory to Earth. The burn is scheduled to take place 61 hours and 30 minutes mission elapsed time. The hour until the free return burn was a frantic one for the crew. In a nominal mission, the flight plan allowed at least two hours for the descent activation procedure the ritual of configuring switches and setting circuit breakers that preceded any burn of the LIMS descent stage engine. The crew now had barely half that time to do the same job and to do it without sacrificing the necessary precision. On top of that, there was still the elusive fine alignment that had to be established before the burn. Lovell was not even close to accomplishing that. But while the hour would be a breathless one on board the ship, on the ground it would provide a chance to catch a breath. At the flight director's console, Gene Krantz removed his headset, stepped back, and glanced around the room. He was not worried about the burn problem. His astronauts and his flight dynamics team would take care of that. What was concerning him was the problem of consumables. 
A few minutes earlier, Krantz had started the word going around Mission Control that as soon as the preparations for the burn began, he wanted to see his entire white team downstairs in room 210. Room 210 was a spare data analysis room in the northeast corner of the mission operations wing. Krantz knew that the free return and the paracynthium plus two hours burn were indispensable to getting the crew home, but he also knew that they would have to stretch the water, oxygen, and power aboard the limb to make the entire journey home. As Krantz looked around mission control, he conducted a quick head count and saw that most of his team members were still at or near their consoles. At the ECOM console, Krantz was happy to see the face of another person who had not been here at the start of the evening. Krantz was happy and relieved to see John Aaron. Anyone who had been working at the Manned Spacecraft Center for even a few weeks quickly learned that John Aaron was the stuff of folk songs. Among the men in the Canaveral blockhouse and the Houston control room, there was no greater tribute a controller could be paid than to describe him as a steely-eyed missile man. John Aaron, the 27-year-old wunderkind from Oklahoma, had recently become one during the Apollo 12 flight. You may recall lightning struck Apollo 12 shortly after liftoff. Pete Conrad radioed down the alarming news that the bottom had fallen out of nearly every reading on every electrical system aboard his ship. Aaron looked down at his console and practically recoiled. The ECOM screen was a strobing mass of blinking lights and ratty numbers. Around the room, the other controllers found that their data had gone crazy too. At the flight director's console, mission boss Jerry Griffin's headset filled with the voices of men asking what the problem with the rocket was and what the flight director intended to do about it. In a situation like this, the flight rules dictated an abort. In the seconds that followed Conrad's call, John Aaron took another look at his screen and noticed something funny. When the electrical system in the command module crashes completely, the amp readings on the ECOM console should drop to zero. Failed fuel cells yield no power. It was that simple. On Aaron's screen, however, the numbers were not at zero, but were hovering at about six amps well below what they should have been if the electrical system was healthy, but well above the zero that would be expected if the system had truly blown. Aaron realized he had seen that pattern before a few years earlier while monitoring a simulated countdown of a Saturn 1B booster. Aaron knew enough not to trust his telemetry and guessed that if he simply pushed a reset switch and rebooted the sensors, the muddled instrumentation would disappear and normal data would return. The young technician hit the appropriate circuit breaker and the Saturn 1B was restored to health. Four years and a half a dozen launches later, Aaron suspected he might be seeing the same problem again with Apollo 12. Flight Ecom, he called into the confusion of the Apollo 12 launch loop. Go Ecom, Jerry Griffin said. Let's get the SCE AUX switch to AUX, Aaron said. 
That might restore the readings. Do it, said Griffin. Aaron pushed the reset switch and instantly, as he predicted, the numbers were restored. Fifteen minutes later, Apollo 12 was in Earth orbit, preparing to blast away toward the moon. Before that day was over, Aaron, to both the delight and envy of his fellow controllers, was informally accorded his steely-eyed missile man designation. Now, just five months later, the man who had done so much to save the mission of Apollo 12 was back in the control room to do what he could to save the crew of Apollo 13. Gene Krantz circulated through mission control, collected his newly named Tiger Team, plus John Aaron, and led them downstairs to room 210. The room was a large windowless chamber filled with conference tables and chairs. The walls and work surfaces were festooned with strip chart recordings and telemetry readouts from the earlier, quieter hours of the mission. At some point later on, these charts were to have been read and analyzed. Now, as the 15 men in Krantz's group filed into the room, Krantz took his place at the front of the room and addressed the group. From now on, the white team is offline. Lunny, Griffin, and Windier will sit at the console shifts. We will return only for two major events. The first will be a maneuver if we decide to do one after we have passed the moon. The second will be the final re-entry. The people in this room will come up with the protocols. The crew will execute. My three leads will be Aldrich, Peters, and Aaron. Make sure everyone knows the mandate I am giving them. Aldrich will be the master of the integrated checklist for the re-entry phase. He will build the checklist for the CSM from the time we start power-up until the crew is on the water. John Aaron will develop the checklist strategy and has the spacecraft resources. He will build and control the budgets for the electrical, water, life support, and any other resources to get us home. Whatever he says goes. Bill Peters will focus on the lunar module lifeboat. There are probably a lot of things we have not considered, and he will lead the effort on how to turn a two-man, two-day spacecraft into one that will last for four days with three men. Tell me Krantz said, turning to Bob Hesselmeyer. I want projections from you. How long can you keep the systems in the limb running at full power? At partial power? Where do we stand on water? What about the battery power? What about oxygen? Ecom. In three or four days, we're going to have to use the command module again. I want to know how we can get that bird powered up and running from a cold stop to splashdown including its guidance platform, thrusters, and life support system, and do it all on just the power we've got left in the re-entry batteries. Retro, Fido, Guido, Control, GNC. I want options on the PC plus two burns and the mid-course corrections from now to re-entry. How much can the PC plus two speed us up? What ocean does it put us in? Can we burn after PC plus two? If we need to. I also want to know how we plan to align this ship if we can't use a star alignment. Can we use sun checks? Can we use moon checks? What about earth checks? Lastly, for everybody in the room, 
I want someone in the computer rooms pulling more strip charts from the time of translunar injection on. Let's try to see if we can't figure out just what went wrong with this spacecraft in the first place. For the next few days, we're going to be coming up with techniques and maneuvers we've never tried before. I want to make sure we know what we're doing. Grant stopped and glanced once more from controller to controller, waiting to see if there were any questions. As was often the case when Gene Krantz spoke, there weren't any. After a few seconds, he turned around and walked wordlessly out the door, heading back toward Mission Control, where dozens of other controllers were monitoring his trio of imperiled astronauts. In the room he left behind were the 15 men he expected to save their lives. Up in Aquarius, Jim Lovell, Fred Hayes, and Jack Swigert were not privy to Krantz's off-console address, and for now at least, they didn't need any pep talks. The designated time for the free return burn was only half an hour away, and the limb was not anywhere near ready to handle the job. Off to the right side of the craft, Hayes was deep into his descent activation checklist, and the shorthand talk between the limb pilot and Capcom, largely familiar to Lovell, utterly alien to Swigert, proceeded in staccato burst. Flight? Good. Okay, he's uh, wanting us to follow him through uh, on the two-hour activation, and so I want some people uh, okay. standing by to go with it on the... Control, tell me you guys, flight. Go. Stand Still. by in the loop here. We're going to walk through the activation. Okay, are we uh, down through one? Step one on page one. Okay, let's go. He's uh, got to hurry to get this uh, two-hour activation done in one hour. So uh, I want to Okay, everybody, uh, quiet in the room, please, and let's walk through with Jack on the activation. Everybody got the book out, ready to follow. Control, tell me, thumbs up, guidance. Go, Jack. Okay, we're on page one, step one. He's going to be talking back. Okay, Fred, let's go ahead. Step one, page one. Everybody's listening. Okay, I've uh, looked around, and uh, I've uh, essentially done uh, steps one through five, uh, with the exception of floodlights and utility lights, and I think we'll just do without those. Tell me you concur. Roger, your choice. Okay, on EPS activation, uh, we're, through, uh, step, uh, we're through that bottom of that page. That's all done. Concur. Okay. We concur. Page two. Listening with one ear, Lovell followed the exchanges, waiting for the occasional procedure that would require him to throw a switch or pull a breaker. For the most part, however, Jim had his hands full with other things. Working his attitude controller more slowly and adeptly now, he had started to get the feel of his top-heavy ship and had managed to rotate it 360 degrees on all three axes. Yet everywhere he looked out his window, the cloud of rubble that surrounded Aquarius seemed uniformly dense. Firing the jets to move straight forward, he tried to fly out of the haze, but it seemed to move with him, almost as if the gravitational attraction of the ships themselves, without the moon's or the earth's gravity, to compete with them, were drawing the rubbish particles along. Now and then Lovell radioed discouraging alignment updates to the ground, but none of these reports was strictly necessary. The angle readouts on the navigation consoles told Mission Control all it needed to know about the limb's loopy attitude.
With time running out, Lunny had dispatched two members of the Apollo 13 backup crew, John Young, the commander, and Ken Mattingly, the grounded command module pilot, to the fixed-based simulators to see if they could come up with some maneuvers Lovell could try. Young, in turn, had phoned Charlie Duke, the backup limb pilot, whose bout with German measles had caused the shuffling of the Apollo 13 crew in the first place. Tom Stafford, who knew better than most the perils of piloting a limb close to the moon, was huddled with Lausma, trying to come up with some ideas of his own. Over the last few minutes, the ground-bound astronauts and the weary Capcom had transmitted a number of suggestions to Lovell, including turning the ship so that the body of the service module blocked the sun, and shifting the limbs so that its triangular windows faced into the shadow rather than toward sunlight. But all of the suggestions yielded nothing. Everywhere Lovell looked, his view of the distant stars was obliterated. Releasing the handle of his thruster control with an exasperated flip, Lovell floated back from the instrument panel. He was now convinced that aligning his platform by the stars was impossible. When Houston radioed up the coordinates for the burn, Lovell would have to punch the data into his navigational computer and hope that the guidance platform was sufficiently aligned to interpret the numbers correctly and point the spacecraft in the right direction. If it was, the crew would be headed for home. If it wasn't, they'd be headed somewhere else. We're going to have to go with what we've got, Lovell said to Hayes and Swigert. Let's hope it's good enough. On the ground, the flight controllers came to the same conclusion at about the same time Lovell did and could see by the suddenly stationary attitude readouts that the commander agreed with them. In theory, the arithmetic Lovell had performed and the ground had checked when the guidance platform was being transferred out of Odyssey should have been sufficient to align Aquarius's platform. But theory was a thin reed to hang on to, and now it seemed that this was all they were going to have. With Dieterich, Bostic, and the rest of the guidance crew watching, Gary Rennick dialed up Lunny to tell him that the time had finally come to burn. Uh, completed it yet. You're ready to copy P-30 maneuver pad. That's the Okay, here we go. The purpose is mid-course correction right. for Patrol. free return. Go. Got an MIT recommendation for the now maneuver to attitude is to use the TTCA rather than the auto maneuver. Two-niner. Hand controller. Four-two-eight-four. Four. Okay. He's been doing that. We'll give it to him. Okay. Zero-zero-two-one-three-plus. Zero 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 four one minus zero zero three one two HA and HP are NA Delta V zero zero three eight zero zero three one Lausma droned into the loop, reading throttle settings, burn times, engine angles, and Delta V objectives, each of which Hayes dutifully read back to him. According to the numbers, the limb pilot and the ground were trading back and forth. The job of actually executing the burn would proceed in several steps. Once all the data was copied down, Hayes would enter the attitude coordinates in the guidance computer, telling the spacecraft, 
relying on its original alignment to swing itself into the correct position for the burn. The test Young and Mattingly conducted in the simulator, with the help of suggestions phoned in by Grumman, indicated that the onboard autopilot could hold the ship in a steady attitude during the engine operation. When the ship had stabilized in the proper attitude for firing, Lovell would deploy the limb's landing gear, extending its four legs to get them out of the way of the descent engine. Next, the computer, relying on other instructions Hayes typed into it, would fire four of Aquarius's attitude jets for seven and a half seconds. This procedure, known as ullage, was intended to jolt the spacecraft slightly forward and force the descent engine fuel to the bottom of its tanks, eliminating bubbles and air pockets. After that, the main descent engine would ignite automatically, firing at 10% thrust for 5 seconds, just enough to get the ship moving. Lovell would then reach for his T-shaped throttle and ease it forward to the 40% position and hold it there, firing the engine at a steady 3,948 pounds of thrust for precisely 25 seconds. At the end of that period, the computer would shut down the combustion chamber and the engine would fall silent. The crew, in theory, would then be on the proper heading to take them around the moon and back to Earth. Hayes entered the guidance platform data into the onboard computer, and as Lovell glanced out the window to the left, Hayes looked out the window to the right, Swigert craned for a look over both of their shoulders, and the thrusters began firing automatically, nudging the spacecraft to the attitude Capcom had specified. Lovell, on cue, reached toward his instrument panel and flipped the switch that controlled the limb's landing gear. The legs clicked in their down and locked position, and Lovell glanced back out the window and nodded to Hayes. The commander and the lunar module pilot then settled themselves in front of their instrument panels, and Swigert retreated to the ascent engine cover behind them. Hayes watched the countdown timer on the limbs panel and then clicked it on the air-to-ground loop. One plus 30 to burn. Wall clock is wrong, flat. Thank you. Roger. Okay, how do you like his configuration at one plus 30? Control, everything okay with you? Control. Yeah, we hadn't seen the verb 65, but that's okay if he doesn't get it. He says so with the throttle, or is he not armed? He He's not armed, armed yet, flat. All right. Guidance okay? We're good, flight. Control okay? We're okay, flight. Tell me, we're go, flight. Inco okay? We're good, flight. All good here at one minute. Roger, Aquarius, and you go for the burn. Lovell flipped the master arm switch to on and quickly glanced around to see if everything else was in order. Guidance control was set to primary guidance, thrust control was on auto, engine gimbals were enabled. The propellant quantity, temperature, and pressure looked good. The ship was maintaining the correct attitude. The computer was in charge now, and Lovell's eyes focused on the countdown display. At 30 seconds before ignition, the display flashed 0640, telling the commander that the computer had armed the engine. 22 and a half seconds later, with 7.5 seconds to go before ignition, the little jets arrayed around the outside of the ship sprang to life as Ullage was initiated, Lovell, Hayes, and Swigert detected a slight push 
as the limb shifted subtly beneath their feet. The control officer said, We have Ullage. We have Ullage. Lovell stayed focused on the computer display, and just five seconds before the burn, it flashed its familiar 9940, asking the commander if he was sure he wanted to make this maneuver. Without hesitation, Lovell pushed the proceed button, and once again, a low vibration shook the ship. We have ignition, low throttle point. 40%. 40%. Rates look good. Rates are holding good, huh? Looking okay, fly. Okay. Okay, Aquarius, you're looking good. Lovell nodded, still holding the thruster handle as vibrations continued all around him. Still looking good. Lovell nodded again, his eyes shifting from the instrument panel in front of him to the watch on his wrist and back again. The engine burned for 10 seconds, 20 seconds, a full 30 seconds, and then alarmingly appeared to go beyond that. But a mere instant longer than it was planned to last, 0.72 seconds longer as measured by the mission control computer. The burn concluded and the engine went silent. Shut down. In the spacecraft and on the ground, Lovell and the controllers glanced instantly and simultaneously at their trajectory and Delta V instruments and smiled at what they saw. The speed of the ship had increased almost exactly as much as it had been designed to increase, and the predicted Persinthian had risen from 60 miles that would have helped the spacecraft ease into lunar orbit to a loftier 130 miles that would help swing it home. Lovell now waited for the order from Houston to trim the burn. This maneuver, a small pulse from the attitude control jets, was usually required even after routine engine firings to refine the trajectory further. Boone, Rennick, Bostick, Dietrich, and the other navigation officers looked at their consoles to see how much trim would be required and were stunned at the answer. None was needed at all. According to the numbers on their monitors, this burn, which violated all the rules of common sense and flight procedures, had come off perfectly, placing Apollo 13 on a path around the back of the moon and then straight toward home. Any requirement to trim? now, Jack. That's good, isn't it? That's good enough. Good, Capcom. Uh, okay, you're uh, going to residuals. Proceed. Okay, when you say go on the residuals, you mean uh, don't uh, trim them? Yes. yes. That's affirmative, uh, no trim required. Pushing back from his instrument panel, Lovell rubbed his eyes. He was relieved, but only momentarily. While the trajectory readouts on his instrument panel were encouraging, most of the other data told another story entirely. Letting his eyes fall on his environmental and power readouts, he could not help doing some quick calculations. If the path the ship was now following held and its speed was not changed further, the crew should reach Earth at about 91 hours from now. The three and three-quarter day transit time was twice as long as the limb with only two men aboard was equipped to last. Salutations from Indiana Dunes State Park. 
This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 273 of the Space Rocket History Podcast, entitled Apollo 13, Free Return, Part 3. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring to you. If you hear a noise in the background, that is rain on the camper. I want to give a big shout out to all my longtime listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. I'm glad you're here. Are you looking for old episodes of the podcast? Episodes 1 through 98, yes, I said 98, are available on iTunes, Google Play, and all your favorite podcatchers. Just look for the Space Rocket History Archive. Today, we salute the shuttle-level donors. There are nine so far this year. Shuttle donors contribute $70 or more during the calendar year. Thanks for your continued support, shuttle donors. Okay, I have just a few quick comments. I'm running a little long for this episode. First, I want to credit my sources. Lost Moon by Jim Lovell, A Man on the Moon by Andrew Chaikin, Failure is Not an Option by Gene Krantz, Flight by Chris Craft, The Apollo 13 Flight Journal, The Internet Archive, and Wikipedia. To me, the scariest part of this episode was having to rely on the computer alignment because of all the debris cloud surrounding the spacecraft, Lovell could not get a star sighting. You may recall that Lovell transferred the data from the command module computer to the lunar module computer, and he had to do a little quick arithmetic to do that. But what was supposed to work in theory actually did work in practice. Now that was a risky move, and it really shows how serious the situation was. Returning to the free return trajectory was a major milestone in returning the astronauts home. And, finally, some good news for Apollo 13. Okay, I have posted some pictures and the audio for this episode on my homepage, spacerockethistory.com. I hope you check that out. We were pleased to receive several donations to support the podcast over the past week. Matthew O. donated at the Orion level and earned his rocket emoji. Peter C. from the U.K. donated at the Apollo level and earned his rocket emoji. Russ E. donated at the Apollo level. Owen W. from Manchester pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level and earned his rocket emoji. Pete increased his pledge on Patreon to the Mercury level with rocket emoji. And Daryl M. donated at the Gemini level. Our Patreon donors are now at 192 with a goal of reaching 218 for 2018. And our total donors for 2018 have reached 359, with a goal of reaching 418 in 2018. For those of you who are enjoying the content provided here and have not donated yet in 2018, please consider supporting the podcast if you are financially able. Keep in mind, Space Rocket History is entirely listener-funded. To support the podcast, go to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com, click on the orange donate button to make a one-time donation or the Patreon link to make small monthly donations. All donors are rewarded with their name on the donors page at the level they choose to donate. For those of you who have already donated for 2018, I certainly appreciate it. This week, it is the new official SRH logo magnet. 
It is 3 inches in diameter, round, and will stick to most refrigerators. To select the winner, Mrs. SRH gave every 2018 donor a number. Then she put the range in Google's random number generator and got the number for Peter Wildbacker. That is Peter Wildbacker. If you will email me and tell me your address, we will mail this out to you. Okay, folks, that's all I have for this week. I'll try to get episode 274 out by next Thursday. So long for now.